Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, Literally Heather. Imagine my surprise when I woke up yesterday to read that Joe Biden had finally taken the time to pop down to Palestine, Ohio to assess the damage done to the area. Just kidding. He popped over to the motherland of Ukraine to rub elbows with his money launderer. He traveled under a cloak of secrecy into a war zone to demonstrate what he called America's unwavering support of the effort to beat back Russian forces nearly a year after they invaded the country. Except, it was only really a cloak of secrecy to the United States. The U.S. notified Russia of President Biden's secret visit to Ukraine hours before his departure in an attempt to avoid sparking conflict when he was in Kyiv. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters yesterday. It's kind of rich, isn't it? Quote, to avoid sparking conflict, conflict like the proxy war y'all are already fighting with them, or conflict like the retaliation for the fact that a sitting president is gallivanting around in a war zone to commit unwavering support to the other country's adversary. That isn't even an allied country, mind you. Let us not forget that fun little token of information when we put all of this into context. We have no binding contract with the country of Ukraine, certainly not from a NATO perspective and not from an economic perspective either, unless we're talking about 10% for the big man or big guy, whatever the fuck it is. Uh, There's not a lot that gets me as fired up as discussing this subject. The White House said the nature of the trip to an active war zone was unprecedented. Given the lack of a U.S. military presence in Ukraine, wink, wink, and the small U.S. diplomatic footprint in the capital, Mr. Biden and a small group of top U.S. officials were on the ground in Kyiv for about six hours Monday to mark the upcoming one-year mark of Russia's war on Ukraine. It was the first time that Mr. Biden visited since Russia's invasion. Oh, but he and his son have visited plenty of times before that, huh? We did notify the Russians that President Biden would be traveling to Ukraine, Sullivan said. uh, We did do some hour, we did so some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. And because of the sensitive nature of those communications, I won't get into how they responded or what the precise nature of our message was. But I can confirm that we provided that notification. It was risky, and it should leave no doubt in anyone's mind that Joe Biden is a leader who takes commitment seriously. That was said by the White House Communications Director, Kate Bedingfield, who told reporters and added that this was a risk the president wanted to take. Biden arrived unannounced early Monday to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky, And the two stepped out into the streets of Kyiv, even as an air raid siren sounded, a dramatic moment captured on video that underscored the investment the United States has made in Ukraine's independence. 
<laughs> you expect us to believe that that wasn't staged by the actor slash propagandist turned leader? One year later, Kiev stands, Biden declared at Zelensky's side in Marinsky Palace, the gilded ceremonial home of the Ukrainian president, and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. Biden promised to release another $500 million in military aid in the coming days, mentioning artillery, ammunition, javelin missiles, howitzers, but he didn't talk about the advanced arms that Ukraine had sought. Zelensky, on the other hand, told reporters that he and the president spoke about long-range weapons and the weapons that may still be supplied to Ukraine, even though it wasn't supplied before. The dude is an expert extortionist, that is for sure. If you thought the Republicans taking over the purse strings would stop the absolute financial hemorrhaging that is currently taking place in the name of Ukraine, I have a bridge to sell you. Two leading House Republicans have called on President Biden to increase military support to Ukraine in its defense against Russia's invasion and reiterated support on both sides of the aisle for continuing to fund the Ukrainian war effort. Texas Representative Mike McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, told Pamela Brown on CNN's State of the Union in a joint interview with House Intelligence Chairman Mike Turner that aired Sunday, the bipartisan support for Ukraine is still very strong. But as the one-year anniversary of the war approaches, McCall warned that hedging support for Ukraine could prolong the conflict, which could play into Russia's advantages and allow anti-Ukraine dissent to build. Newsflash, the dissent is not only building, it is transforming into pro-Russian sentiment. The longer that the Biden administration officials drag this out, they play into Vladimir Putin's hands. He wants this to be a long, protracted war because he knows that potentially he will lose. We could lose the will of the American people and therefore the Congress. The U.S. and its allies have already sent nearly $50 billion in aid and equipment to Ukraine's military over the past year. To keep that up and to rebuild its own stockpiles, the Pentagon is racing to rearm, embarking on the biggest increase in ammunition production in decades. Hell, they're asking bicycle manufacturing shops to start <laughs> producing ammunition. Uh, putting portions of the U.S. defense industry on war footing despite America technically not being at war. I'm sorry. The jokes are really writing themselves today. Technically not being at war. The only difference is you're not wasting American lives for your stupid endeavors. Yet, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham echoed that message, telling an ABC in an interview that aired on Sunday that U.S. lawmakers attending the Munich Security Conference were in virtually unanimous belief that the United States should begin training Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. I believe a decision will be imminent when we get back to Washington that the administration will start training Ukrainian pilots on the F-16. They need the weapon system. 
Of course they do, (laughs) because why not? Turner, an Ohio Republican, defended congressional support for Ukraine despite several of his fellow House GOP colleagues co-signing a, quote, Ukraine fatigue resolution calling for the U.S. to end military and financial aid to the country. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told CNN last week that he opposes the resolution. Turner equated the resolution to a letter more than two dozen progressive House Democrats sent to the White House last fall, asking it to pursue diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine. The letter was retracted shortly after. You have a handful on both sides who have been cautious or who have said they don't want to support or want the support to come to an end, he said. There are 435 members of Congress, and there are probably 400 that are continuing support in this direction. And there you have it, folks, a full admission that we are now the United States of Ukraine with a few bastard children who deserve the belt to fall in line. In addition to our unwavering support to Ukraine, Washington is planning fresh sanctions on Russia with key industries targeted. The sanction targets include Russia's financial institutions, energy, and defense sectors. You've already sanctioned the energy sectors, haven't you, Joe Biden? The White House is readying a draft of new sanctions and export controls to impose on Russia as the war in Ukraine turns a year old. This is according to Bloomberg. The coming new penalties are said to be focused on targeting key Russian industries, as well as so-called sanction circumvention or business conducted with Russian firms by individuals based in third countries. The measures are looking to target Russian financial institutions, as well as the energy and defense sectors. People familiar with the new sanctions package said that the EU seeks to approve a new set of measures as well next week and is considering forcing banks to report Russian assets that they hold as well. Last week, Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson said the bloc is looking to form a group to identify frozen Russian funds, which will be used to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine. An un unprecedented step. Christensen said the mandate is to contribute to mapping which funds have been frozen in the European Union, and secondly, how to legally proceed to access those funds. I'm not going to lie, I don't like where this is headed as far as setting a precedent with how financial assets should be handled by governmental powers. I, I understand this may be like, quote unquote, Russia's money, but you're stealing oligarch ships and you're like this civil asset forfeiture is like, at what point do you start turning that on your own citizens, right? The EU package aims to target Iranian entities as well, which are accused of providing drones and other military goods to Russia. However, Tehran has repeatedly stated that it stopped providing drones to Russia after the war in Ukraine was launched. Additionally, the EU measures are said to be eyeing extensive trade controls on other goods used by Russia's military, including technologies, components, heavy vehicles, electronics, and rare earth metals. These new efforts come as more evidence mounts 
that the United States-led sanctions blitz against Moscow has failed. Russia has overtaken Saudi Arabia as China's top crude supplier. India's imports of Russian oil are 33 times higher than they were a year ago. And Russia's oil exports last month were higher than at any time during 2021. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen promised Russia was isolated. The ruble was in a free fall. But as Forbes reported late last year, even after crashing following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, the ruble is one of the best performing currencies against the dollar in 2022, gaining nearly 30% in value year to date. They just think you're too stupid to understand or look up any of this information. They want you to believe everything they tell you and accept it and never ask any questions. For better or worse, the Supreme Court could soon redefine the rules of the internet as we know it. This week, the court will hear two cases, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomney, Tomney, uh, it's spelled T-A-A-M-N-E-H. Um, and then I'll have both of those cases uh, in the show notes. Gives it the opportunity to drastically change the rules of speech online. Both cases deal with how online platforms have handled terrorist content. And both have sparked deep concerns about the future of content moderation, algorithms, and censorship. If you've spent any time following the various culture wars associated with free speech online over the last several years, you've probably heard of Section 230, sometimes referred to as the 26 words that invented the internet. Section 230 is a clause of the Communications Decency Act that shields online platforms from liability for their users' actions. It also protects companies' ability to moderate what appears on their platforms. Without these protections, Section 230 defenders argue the internet as we know it could not exist. But the law has also come under scrutiny the last several years amid a larger reckoning with big tech's impact on society. Broadly, those on the right favor repealing Section 230 because they claim it enables censorship, while some on the left have said it allows tech giants to avoid responsibility for the societal harms caused by their platforms. But even among those seeking to amend or dismantle Section 230, there's been little agreement about specific reforms. Section 230 also lies at the heart of Gonzalez versus Google, which the Supreme Court will hear today. The case brought by family members of a victim of the 2015 Paris terrorist attack argues that Google violated U.S. anti-terrorism laws when ISIS videos appeared in YouTube's recommendations. Section 230 protections, according to the suit, should not apply because YouTube's algorithms suggested the videos. It basically boils down to saying platforms are not liable for content posted by ISIS, but they are liable for recommendation algorithms that promoted that content. Um, during a recent panel discussing the case, uh, they said that may seem like a relatively narrow distinction, but algorithms underpin almost every aspect of the modern internet. So the Supreme Court's ruling could have an enormous impact, not just on Google, 
but on nearly every company operating online. If the court sides against Google, then it could mean that online platforms would have to change the way they operate to avoid being held liable for the content that is promoted on their sites. Some have speculated that platforms could be forced to do away with any kind of ranking at all, or would have to engage in content moderation so aggressive that it would eliminate all but the most banal, least controversial content. Why can't we just modify it where the platforms are platforms? They're like the town square. Like it's completely devoid of any responsibility. Like if you go in that town hall and you say something, the town hall didn't do anything. You did. And you have free speech. So the only, (laughs) you're, the platform's protected because it didn't do anything. and You're protected because you have the right to speak. I don't understand why that's so complicated for people. If you, I mean, like, ooh. <laughs> I, a system that just literally fed all the information chronologically and what you want to engage with, you can. What you don't, you just move past rather than having a specific internal system sending you what it thinks you want to see and engage with. What if I'm not in the mood for politics today? What if I want to see puppies and Pittsburgh penguins? I'm multifaceted. Algorithms are not. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court hears arguments in yet another case with potentially huge consequences for the way online speech is moderated. Twitter versus... Tom Nay or Tom D. I should know how to pronounce these words before I get on here. It's way more fun not worrying about it. Like Gonzalez, this case was brought by the family of a victim of a terrorist attack. And like Gonzalez, family members of the victim are using U.S. anti terrorism laws to hold Twitter, Google, and Facebook accountable, arguing the platforms and advocacy groups. That is that a ruling against Twitter would have profound, oh wait, hold on, arguing that the platforms aided terrorist organizations by failing to remove ISIS content from their services. As with the earlier case, the worry from tech platforms and advocacy groups is that a ruling against Twitter would have profound consequences for social media platforms and publishers. There are implications on content moderation and whether companies should be liable for violence, criminal, or defamatory activity promoted on their websites. If the Supreme Court were to agree that the platforms were liable, then greater content moderation policies and restrictions on content publishing would need to be implemented, or this will incentivize platforms to apply no content moderation to avoid awareness. I am in favor of that process. There could even be potential ramifications for companies whose services are primarily operated offline. If a company can be held liable for a terrorist organization's actions simply because it allowed that organization's members to use its products on the same terms as any other consumer, then the implications could be astonishing. It's going to be several more months before we know the outcome of either of these cases, though analysts will be closely watching the proceedings to get a hint of where the justices may be leaning. 
It's also worth noting that these aren't the only pivotal cases concerning social media and online speech. There are two other cases related to restrictive social media laws out of Florida and Texas. I've talked about them extensively on my show, if you've been listening to me for any amount of time, and those may end up at the Supreme Court as well. Both of those could also have significant consequences for online content moderation. In the meantime, Many advocates argue that Section 230 reform is best left to Congress, not the courts. I also agree with that assessment. As Jeff Kosaf, a law professor at the U.S. Naval Academy, who literally wrote the book about Section 230, recently wrote, cases like Gonzalez challenge us to have a national conversation about tough questions involving free speech, content moderation, and online harms. But, he argues, The decision should be up to the branch of government where the law originated. Perhaps Congress will determine that too many harms have proliferated under Section 230 and amend the statute to increase the liability for algorithmically promoted content. Such a proposal would face its own set of costs and benefits, but it is a decision for Congress, not for the courts. And last but not least, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe said in a speech posted online yesterday that he has been removed as the leader. In remarks that appeared to have been made at Project Veritas's office, O'Keefe said that the board had stripped him of all decision-making. The move comes after the board reportedly put him on leave from his role as chairman amid complaints about his treatment of staff at the organization which is known for using hidden camera and hiding identities to ensnare journalists in embarrassing conversations and to reveal supposed liberal bias, supposed. (laughs) So, currently, I have no job at Project Veritas, O'Keefe said in the video. I have no position here based upon what the board has done, so I'm announcing to you all today On President's Day, I'm packing up my personal belongings. In a statement released later Monday, the group's board of directors said it had uncovered financial malfeasance and accused O'Keefe of spending an excessive amount of donor funds in the last three years on personal luxuries. According to the board, those included $14,000 on a charter flight to meet someone to fix his boat under the guise of meeting with a donor, $60,000 in losses from dance events, more than $150,000 in black cars in the last 18 months, and others. Just black cars. It doesn't say what kind of black cars. (laughs) Just black cars. This statement added that O'Keefe had been suspended in recent weeks. It said he was invited to meet with the board to discuss financial issues and staff retention and morale. But he ignored those entreaties and today decided to remove his belongings from Project Veritas's headquarters. O'Keefe, who choked up and wiped away tears during his remarks in the video, said several times that the nearly 45-minute speech was for staff internally, but it was posted on the Vimeo platform. I'm not sure of the veracity of the claims listed Without James O'Keefe, I feel that Project Veritas is likely a sinking ship. He is the face of the organization, and ousting him when he is the one that started the company feels pretty underhanded, but 
I understand that when you start putting boards in place, you start getting people who don't necessarily align from a belief perspective from the original founding of the company and CEOs are ousted every day. Uh, It reminds me of the Papa John's uh, scenario that happened um, not too long ago. So that is your Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. As always, I love having you guys be a part of my day and allowing me to be a part of yours. You guys take care and I'll see you tomorrow. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.